Our first scripture reading is from 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 through to chapter 2 verse 2. One of the uh, best known passages uh, proclaiming God's mercy to those who repent of their sins. 1 John 1 verse 5 through to chapter 2 verse 2. Starting from verse 5. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you, that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And I'd like to draw to your attention uh, particularly this uh, statement in chapter 1 verse 7, that um, if we walk in the light, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. It's particularly that the universality of that statement, all sin, that I'd like to draw to your attention. As we turn then also to Isaiah chapter 44 and the text for the sermon, Isaiah 44 verses 21 to 23. After that, I'll read from the Westminster. So, 44 from verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and in Israel... He shows forth his glory. And uh, then if you turn to the Westminster, it should be uh, in the bulletin 15, chapter 15 and article 4.
Article 4. As there is no sin so small but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use your word and the preaching of it to strengthen our faith, to do so all in, a, in such a way that we may detect and deal with any hindrance to the expression and enjoyment of that faith. Father, will you use your word and the preaching also to um, cause us to uh, not only identify but also to turn away from sin, to preserve us from any double-mindedness, and certainly from falling away. Father, we thank you that for those who do truly know you, we can be sure that they will never be snatched from your hand. We thank you for that assurance and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, uh, we could probably divide Christians into two groups. There are those who are inclined to uh, worry only about the sins in their lives that they regard as the big ones and to uh, not pay so much attention to the sins that they think of as small. And then on the other hand, you have those who find themselves uh, extremely troubled and who have trouble feeling they're forgiven even in the case of what one might regard as a smaller sin. Of course, both of those reactions, those responses, can be found in any one Christian, uh, depending on the day, depending on the person perhaps to some extent, but in the circumstances, uh, we're all capable of dismissing certain things as very minor and having trouble accepting the fact that God has forgiven us with other things. And also, admittedly, it can be rather dangerous to start uh, classifying or categorising sins on some kind of spiritual Richter scale, uh, as into those that are really shocking and those that uh, are quite uh, minor. Because, after all, all sin is transgression. And as far as that's concerned, a big or small sin, it's still crossing the line against what God has said in his word, and it is rebellion against him. But it's true that some sins cause more damage than others. And in the particular situation, some sins may indicate a higher degree of hardness of heart than other things. But nevertheless, overall, I guess there is this general tendency for Christians to tend to go in one direction or the other as to how they respond to their own sins, either a little bit blase or sometimes uh, what you might call oversensitive in a certain, a certain way. Well, the Westminster, in this article, brings these two sides together. And you could sum up what the Westminster is saying in this way. It's making these two points, that firstly, even the smallest sin deserves hell. And then it couples with that this second truth, that not even the greatest sin can lead to us being, being consigned to hell if we are truly repentant. So those are the two things brought together here. And the text also has something to say about these matters. And we're going to look at that under three headings. A call to remember, a call to repent, 
and a call to rejoice. The uh, three R's, not reading, writing and arithmetic in this case, but a call to remember, repent and rejoice. In the first place then, the Lord calls upon his people to remember these things. Uh, What's he talking about? What are the things that we're called to remember here? These things. Well, you get some idea if you glance back over the rest of that chapter earlier, the preceding section, chapter 44. And you can divide it into three sections, the previous verses. Verses 1 to 5, which call on God's people to remember that God has formed his people. He has made his people his servants. And he will bless them because they are his possession. Because he formed them and made them his servants. Then to remember also, verses 6 to 8, that there is only one true and living God, and that is the God of the Bible. Get summarised it that way. And then verses 9 to 20, to remember that idolatry, sin, is such a great folly. It is foolishness as well as wickedness. So those are the these things that are in the background of this verse in, in our text to remember these things. And not surprising then that verse 21 recaps that as it calls on Israel to remember these truths for, it is explained, Israel is his servant. And he has formed his servant. He has formed them. This is the same kind of language you read in Genesis the first couple of chapters of Genesis, that God uh, creates everything from nothing. There's one word where the word create, in in, uh, the way it's translated in the NASB, the word create uh, means, it's uh, from a word in Hebrew that means to bring something entirely new into existence that had no prior existence. Uh, But then having created the world, God takes some of that material and he shapes and forms it to make other things, as he did with man, taking created dust or clay and forming it into a man and then breathing in, into that, uh, that dust to give life. Um, so that's the idea of God forming, shaping material like a potter with the clay. And that is what God has done with Israel. That is what he's done with his church as well as the individual Christian. He moulds and shapes you through your life like clay as well as having created man from nothing in the beginning. And because of these truths, the Lord points out to Israel, because of that, you can be absolutely sure that God will never forget you. How could the creator forget his creation? How could the potter forget his work of art that he has shaped and moulded the way he wants? And for that matter, how could the master forget his servant? And note the argument here in this. God is the one who made us. He's the one who shaped us, who's made us who and what we are. He is the one who has taken us as his servants, uh, as his possession. Uh, How could he forget us? Does a parent forget his children? Even when his children stray, does he forget them? And in the Old Testament, well, we might say that uh, today, putting it in our terms, we might say an employer can easily forget his employees. He can be so concerned with how the business is running and how much money he's making that he forgets that the people working for him are people. That's possible. 
But in the Old Testament, how a master treated his servant was governed by the word of God. And there were commandments given to masters. Also in the New Testament. In the Bible, a master must not forget his servants. And God certainly does not forget his servants. And you see, this is very relevant to the issue I raised at the start in the introduction. Whichever of those groups you fall into, whether you're one who is inclined to be a little bit blasé about your sins, but you still are a repentant person, or whether you are a repentant person who has trouble laying hold of and embracing in the heart that God has forgiven you for all of your sins, whichever of those groups you fall into, there is one thing of which you can be absolutely certain. And that is that God will not forget you. He will not forget that you are his child, his possession, his servant. He will not forget these things either in the way that he deals with and responds to your sins. And not only will he not forget those things, he will not forget himself. He will not forget who he is. He will not forget that he is the God of a loving character attribute, that attribute, merciful, compassionate, loyal. And he will not forget his own works, especially his works in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will not forget these realities as he considers and responds to your sins, whether those sins are great or small, relatively speaking. I'm speaking here, of course, about a person who is truly repentant. I'm not talking about an unbeliever. I'm not talking about a hypocrite, uh, someone who's pretending to be a Christian, but a true child of God. And one of the works that he will never forget, which is drawn attention to here, is the work of redemption. It's stressed in this passage because it's mentioned twice, verses 22 and 23. I have redeemed you, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. And I'd like to draw attention to two things about that. First of all, the tense. Uh, This is using a tense which in language is often called a perfect tense, meaning it's something that's completed, completed in the past. God doesn't say here, I am redeeming you. He doesn't say, I will redeem you. He says, I have redeemed you. God has redeemed Jacob. He says it twice, which means it's done and dusted. And the second thing I want to say about that that important language is the word that's used here for redeem. The Hebrew language has a number, a couple of words for redeem, redemption, and this is one of them. It's a common one. And it's a word that means it refers to the duty of a close relative or the owner of property, such as a master uh, or of a servant, such as with a master. It refers to that person paying a price to buy back or to set free his close relative or to free up his property in some way or to free up his servant in some way. It is a word that refers to the duty of the kinsman redeemer. In the Old Testament, the kinsman redeemer points to the Lord Jesus Christ because he is our close relative. He is our brother by adoption, and God is our father. And he is our master by the right of creation, and by the right of his lordship, and by the right of redemption. 
God does not forget that his son is our kinsman redeemer. And he does not forget that even as he considers our sins, whether they are small or great, and we should not forget it either, that our close relative by adoption, our kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, has bought us back. He's paid the price to ensure that his possession remains his possession and that his relatives are freed up and his, those who would otherwise be in slavery to the devil are freed from that. Nor should we forget the consequence of this redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 22, I have wiped out your transgression like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. And you see, this way of putting it is very relevant to this question of how we regard our sins, but also how God regards them, the the sins of his people. Because it describes our sins here as a thick cloud. The sins of Israel are described here as a thick cloud and a heavy mist, indicating that this is not a light problem. Sin is not some light haze in our lives that we hardly notice. This is a thick cloud and a heavy mist. It is, in fact, a a deadly and a serious thing. There are many sins in our lives, and the least of them is, is a deadly thing in itself. The least transgression. For the least transgression, the wages of sin, be it a light sin or a heavy sin, relatively speaking, the wages of sin is the same. It's death. And we have many of those, both lighter and heavier. That's why Matthew 12 verse 36 says, every careless word that you speak, there'll be an accounting on the day of judgment. That's just the careless words. That's not even the premeditated words of cruelty that we speak to others or the premeditated evil deeds or for that matter, the thoughts. No, there is no sin so small but it deserves damnation, as the Westminster says in this article. And perhaps we are inclined to think that our sins are small, but uh, perhaps it is good for us to look at it this way, that if you have a 20-storey building, that's that's a pretty big building, it's reasonably big, it's certainly a very heavy building. And you compare that with a a small uh, two- or three-bedroom house. Yet the fact is that no man can lift either. Relatively speaking, one is bigger and heavier than the other, but it makes no difference if if you've set yourself the task, the impossible task of trying to lift one of those buildings in your own strength. It's not going to happen. No sinner can lift even the smallest sin. But what we're being told here, and this is the other side of the coin in this article in the Westminster, the Lord can lift anything. Just as the sun and the wind can burn or blow away what man cannot burn or blow away even the the heaviest morning fog. And uh, I've seen some pretty heavy smog. uh, been in uh, Beijing a couple of times uh, with the air thick. Uh, So... uh, you look at that and you say, how, could, uh, you know, how are they going to get out of that? How is that city going to be relieved from that? And then the next day, the wind changes direction and it's a beautiful fine day and the sky is blue and you can see the mountains in the distance. 
Well, man can't do those things, but God can. He can do that in nature, lift those heavy, heaviest of smogs where in broad daylight you can only see maybe 100 or 200 metres ahead because of air pollution. God can use the things of nature that he has made to dissipate that. And the Lord can also burn or blow our sins away, whether they're heavy or light makes no difference to him. He can burn them away, he can blow them away as even more easily than the wind and the sun do that with the fog and air pollution and such. And we're being told here he has done that. He has done it through the blood of his son. And so the believer who struggles to feel forgiven, either with small or great sins, uh, needs to lay hold of that great assurance and encouragement. The book of Isaiah has other things of a similar nature. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, no matter how much of a stain they put upon your life, though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Isaiah 1.18. Or here, though they are as thick as a low cloud or a heavy mist, they will be like a cloudless sky. That's the analogy here. Well, these truths also underpin the way in which this is uh, used This call comes to Israel to repent. Our second point, a call to repent. Verse 22, return to me for I have redeemed you. The word return there is the repentance word. The call to turn, to turn back. Now we could give theoretically different reasons for repenting and the scripture itself provides different reasons in different passages. Comes at this issue from many different angles because we need that. Uh, we often <laughs> need a lot of convincing to do what we know we should be doing. We could say, if we looked at the earlier part of this chapter, that uh, in, co- in terms of what Israel was called to remember, we could say, repent because of who the Lord is. He's the almighty God who tells us to repent. Who, who are we to say, oh, I'm not going to do that, when God says when he calls to you and commands, repent, turn back. Or we could say, repent because of the folly of sin. What you're doing is utter foolishness. It's folly as well as wickedness. So turn from it before that folly catches up with you. We could put it that way legitimately. But the reason given here is repent because the Lord has already redeemed you. And this is a very important way of putting it because it makes it clear that the ground of our redemption and the ground of our forgiveness is not our own act of repenting. We've seen that before in this section on the Westminster too. Redemption is an act of God's free grace in Christ. Westminster 15.3 If it depended on our act of repenting, on the quantity of our repentance with our many sins, or the quality of it, how far our our whole being is engaged in it, if it depended on that, we would never be able to say there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Because our repentance is so horribly compromised. But God's grace and his power, infinite power, 
And the value of the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ, infinite value, these are such that you can have this assurance when your salvation and your forgiveness rest upon him rather than upon your own work of repentance. And when you do that, when you rest upon him, then the order can be put in this way. And it is good to put it in this way. Repent because God has redeemed you in Christ. Though it's also true to say that sinners need to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. That's also true. But putting it in the the way that it is in this text, in verse 22, makes clear that our ongoing repentance as God's people should be motivated by gratitude for what the Lord Jesus has already accomplished, what he's already done for you, as well as the recognition that because of what the Lord Jesus has already done, he's already acted as the kinsman redeemer and paid a great price the price of his own blood, which involved the agony of hell as well. He's already paid that price, which gives him another claim of ownership upon you, that you are his possession when he calls upon you to repent. Our brother and master who has redeemed us, he has the right to call upon you to turn from the false would-be master, Satan. And to return to him. And that is why we have this order when we say that God has already redeemed you, done and dusted, therefore repent. That same order that God has redeemed us, therefore we repent, is also the basis for the call to rejoice, our third and final point. In this passage, the heavens, the lower parts of the earth, the mountains, the forest, the trees, in other words, all of creation from the greatest heights of the heavens to the greatest depths underneath the earth's surface, uh, all is called to rejoice. And it's called to rejoice because the Lord has done it, because the Lord has redeemed Israel. It's, it's grounded in what God has already accomplished through Christ, verse 23. And creation is called upon to witness to that, to rejoice in that, uh, for one reason, because creation shares in it. Romans 8, verse 18 forward, that the whole of creation shares in the restoration that we have as God's people because we have been redeemed in Christ. And the day will come when all of that is brought to its fullest fruition, when the Lord Jesus returns. But you see, if it depended on our repenting, If that were the ground of our salvation or forgiveness, it would be way too premature to rejoice. Because then it would be on a very dubious basis. One with a very uncertain outcome, or actually perhaps we should rather say the outcome would be certain failure if it depended on our repenting. But it doesn't depend on that. It depends on the once for all accomplished work of Christ. And that's why why a Christian can be commanded unequivocally repent, not wait and uh, rejoice rather, not wait and see how things turn out. And if it turns out in a way that you like, then you can rejoice. But even when you feel the weight of your sins and other problems in your life, you can still rejoice because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on what Christ has already finished. 
Because God has done it. Because the Lord has redeemed Israel. Verse 23. Isaiah wrote, uh, of course, well before the Lord Jesus Christ. But he was so certain of God's messianic program of redemption that he was able to speak of this as something that was already done. It was that certain to the prophet Isaiah. And it should be to us as well. No sins, no matter how great, can overturn that. Can overturn that certainty. And that's why we have such a reason to rejoice always, at all times. Note also that the reason for rejoicing in that is not primarily something that's man-centred. It certainly has implications for man, but it's not a man-centred thing. It doesn't say rejoice because we're going to heaven despite our sins and we're going to have a really great time there. It's going to be fantastic. Oh, that's true, it is. But that's not the reason that's given here for the rejoicing. The reason given here for rejoicing and for all creation rejoicing is because the Lord has done it. Because, as it says in Israel, he shows forth his glory. He shows forth his glory by the fact that he has done this, by the fact that he has redeemed Israel in the Old Testament, by the fact that he has redeemed his church and redeemed us also in this New Testament time. He shows by this that he is the Lord. He shows his unchangeably, faithfully, that he is unchangeably, faithfully, covenant-keeping the Lord. He shows by this that he is merciful and compassionate. Yet he also shows that he is by no means winking at sin. And therefore, in the same breath that he gives this assurance, he calls upon his redeemed children, his redeemed servants, to return to him when they stray. Those two things brought together. A message that comforts the disturbed. I think I mentioned that before, but we were told at Theological College that a preacher's job is to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable, but that's what the scripture does. And that's what it does here as well. And that's what the Westminster is doing. A message that comforts the disturbed because it gives and gives the basis for assurance and joy to those who show that they are united with Christ in faith and they demonstrate that by repenting of their sins, albeit repenting in great weakness. But we demonstrate our union with the Lord Jesus Christ by doing so. That's where the assurance comes from and that's why we can rejoice. That's the comfort for those who are disturbed. But at the same time, Disturbing the comfortable, uh, disturbing those who are complacent with this reminder that every sin, whether it be small or great, even the smallest of sins, deserves death and God's people are called to repent of it. These two halves of the Westminster that must be brought together, that are brought together here, in order to comfort and disturb God's people at the same time. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you enable us to find a balance concerning how we think about our sins? On the one hand, not playing down the loathsomeness 
of what we, we might consider small sins. But nor, on the other hand, doubting the power and value of your son's work to cause these sins to be blown away, even the heaviest cloud of sin. Father, will you move us to a greater degree of repentance, arising from a greater degree of gratitude? And will you enable us also, including those with a particularly sensitive conscience, to know the peace and assurance that all our sins are forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. The Lord has made redemption known to us. He's, in fact, in sending his son, he sent a full horn of salvation. You know, sometimes people um, drank out of horns and uh, here we have this image of drinking out of a full horn of salvation with the coming of Christ. A horn also symbolised power in the Bible symbolism, so a very powerful salvation it is. Hymn number 333, stanzas 1, 2 and 4. We'll stand to sing, and would you please remain standing afterwards for the blessing and doxology. 333, stanzas 1, 2 and 4.
after the blessing as our doxology, we sing number 224, stanzas 1 and 2. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thank you.